0: Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Hello and welcome to the Business of Psychology. In this season of the podcast, we are talking about fulfillment in our work and what we can do in independent practice to bring ourselves more fulfillment. So I'm really excited today to be here with Dr. Jo Muller, who has recently launched the Guilty Parents Club as a project that brings her more fulfillment in her work. And um, so, I'm not going to spend ages rambling about Jo when she can do that much better herself, because um, I've known Jo for a while now, and I'm really pleased to have her to talk to you today. And um, so, hello, welcome to the pod, Jo. Hi, Rosie.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, where you started as a psychologist? Yeah, so I actually
1: started um, working as a research psychologist back in the day I worked for University College London um, and I worked in a small unit where we did lots of international projects looking at um, parent mental health and parent and child well-being in communities in South Africa for example. and I also worked on projects um, supporting parents in, in Norway um, and so I, I kind of came at parenting quite quite early on really loved it, but wanted to to work more more clinically. So um, obviously, then did my clinical training. And after clinical training, I worked in cam services in in Central London for a number of years, where um, I worked in sort of the main cam service, but also in the neurodevelopmental um, teams. And yeah, obviously, I loved working with children. But for me, parents were always kind of the, I guess the most important part, because I just always felt like you know we see a child for maybe an hour a week, at most in CAMs, but of course you know they're at home the rest of the time. Even before I was a parent, I could see that being a parent was a really really hard job, particularly if your child is is coming to CAMs for additional needs. And so I set up a number of groups and programs whilst I was in cams to try and support parents and um, we introduced mindful parenting group. And then I subsequently had a secondment where I was working at King's College London developing a new parenting program for for parents of children with autism. Um, because you know the post diagnostic support out there is really limited and so that that was something I really enjoyed and um, so we ran that in a in an rct so yeah I guess I've kind of done a number of things related to to parenting and then when I moved into private practice I think it just felt really natural for me to focus my work with with parents partly because I was working mainly online at that point um and you can work with children online but it's it's not that easy and working with parents is much easier I'd also recently become a parent myself and I think often our work as psychologists has some synergy with where we are in our, in our lives. Um, And so, yeah, I started working with parents, not, I guess, both with parenting, um, but also with parent mental health, um, because they obviously go completely um, hand in hand. So, yeah, I've always wanted to work with kind of both of those things at the same time. What prompted your decision to move into independent practice? So there were a couple of things that happened. So I had my little boy in 2017. Um, My husband also got a new job, which involved kind of more international travel. And so I needed a practice that was going to be flexible around location, but also around childcare. Um, And yeah, it just seemed like the right move to make my secondment um, King's was was finishing, the research study was finishing, and so I had to kind of make a decision whether I was going to go back to my NHS post, which required a long commute and, you know, just wasn't that flexible and it just wasn't the right thing for our family at the time. Um, it did feel like a really big wrench, I have to say, to leave the NHS at that point, but um, yeah, I was ready for for a new challenge and to kind of see, see where my sort of interest could could take me I think
0: just sort of dwelling on that a little bit because I think it often does feel like a big wrench for people Mm -hmm. can you remember what it was that felt like a loss at that time
1: I, I think for me I had always intended to spend my entire career in the NHS you know I'd gone into to training absolutely with that intention and even after training you know I worked full time for, for several years. I finished training relatively young, so I wasn't straight into the kind of family cycle at that point. So I did benefit from from that. And I just really hadn't at all envisaged not working in the NHS, you know. Um so I think it was just trying to get my head around the idea of not doing that. And I think maybe in the past there was a bit of a stigma of psychologists working privately as well. I don't know if you've come across that at all. But I think now it's so, so different. It's really different now. Um, but even five, well, certainly 10 years ago, I think it was look looked down on a little bit. Um, and yeah, I think just kind of trying to envisage an, a different type of career for myself than what I'd imagined.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I really relate to that. I think in a very similar way, um, it was about 2016, 2017 (laughs) that I was making the decision as well, and I felt very stigmatized about it. And I think it had been explicitly uh, talked about in our training program as being kind of selling out and um, that we were being trained for the NHS and that you should Mm. stay in the NHS. I don't think it was even hidden. (laughs) I think Mm. it was explicit um so yeah i actually i hear it a lot from coaching clients that they're feeling a lot of shame um, mm. and it and it comes from that i think for me there was also and i wondered if if you would relate to this because you've done such interesting things in your career i was worried when i went into independent practice that that was going to be over that there'd be no more research that there'd be no more
1: mm.
0: you know service evaluation and creating new stuff and testing it did that worry you
1: yeah, I definitely think that was in there because research has always been such a kind of core part of my work. Um, obviously, that was what I did before I went into clinical. I've That was one of the reasons I wanted to train as a clinical psychologist rather than, say, a psychotherapist, because I really wanted that academic research component. You know, not that one can't have that, but it's an integral part of being a clinical psychologist. Um, and yeah, and with the kind of international kind of element of maybe needing to move around a bit, the thought of not being able to work for a a university was really, yeah, it was really difficult. And actually, I think COVID has done me a lot of favours in in that regard, because um, universities have had to look at the rules that they've got about who they can employ and how and where. Um, And I think that's made lots of things a lot more flexible for us. So I think that's that's really positive. Um, and helped me to sort of feel more at home with, yeah, working in a more as more of a consultant, I suppose. And now I, I can see that 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 can work. Um, and I still have links with it. Canterbury Christchurch, where I where I trained, um, I've been supervising a number of trainees on their MRP um, research, which is a I really love that as a way of keeping a hand in with research. Um, but yeah, I totally hear what you're saying on that front
0: yeah so i guess now sort of bringing it a little bit more up to date you know what were the challenges that you faced when you started this kind of online practice which back then wasn't that normal well the good thing about it was that i actually started before
1: um the pandemic so, when the pandemic came i w- I'd already been doing working on zoom for for a year, so I sort of felt quite comfortable with that and I think what was quite helpful was that I started up really slow when my son was little. I was really very lucky that there wasn't a financial pressure for me to suddenly have full time hours with an online um business, so I could sort of just start and see see what I enjoyed doing and see see how it went um and it's kind of grown that way i had a second child and you know so then you sort of slow down a bit and then but actually being able to work for yourself and being able to work online meant that i could go back to work a little bit sort of earlier than i would otherwise and and kind of build up in a a natural way so that i was very fortunate for that
0: so were there any kind of major hurdles that you've had to overcome in the development of your practice, or did it kind of just follow that nice incremental path? The The major hurdle for me is
1: selling and marketing, which is why I know you Rosie, because <laughs> I, you know, I was, I, I had the ideas for kind of various courses and groups that I wanted to run for parents. Um, and put the material together. Um, and that's really a kind of labor of love for me. And you know, we can talk a bit more about that process in a, in a minute, but the the fact of having to get it out there to, to people to actually see what you're doing, to see whether they're interested in doing it um, is really hard for me and really, you know, I find it quite unnatural. And so um, having support from, from you, um, was really invaluable because I can, you know, be in touch with not only you but lots of other psychologists going through the same, the same process because I think many of us find it quite, quite challenging. I would definitely say that's been my absolute number one stumbling block.
0: And sometimes it's so valuable just to hear that other people also don't feel comfortable with it um, and have that support for each other. So what drew you then to creating groups um online products that kind of thing
1: well i i think i expect that many people when they start working in private practice you start to see a pattern more of a pattern to what people are bringing i think in the nhs it's a it's a different kind of animal really and maybe there's a bit more variety i think in in private practice you do start to see patterns and so i think that led me to kind of want to do two things one of which was to I guess, create a a framework a model I That's how I think. I think in structure and I think in think visually a lot. And so I wanted to kind of create this framework that would make sense to parents drawing together the the psychological models that I was using, um, but making it a bit more memorable for my clients. But it also made me want to kind of get these parents together because I could see that they were all having really similar struggles. Um, And my experience previously from, from running groups with parents is that something magical just happens when you get them together, because not only is it yes, it's more efficient, you can deliver the same material to the same people at the same time, but it's not that it's the fact that the the shame just sort of melts away because they can suddenly they're like, Oh, other people are going through the same thing as me. Um, and of course, when you're working a lot with shame and guilt and trying to help parents develop sort of more self compassion, which is kind of at the root of what I'm trying to do a lot of the time. Having that extra special component of them melting it away themselves is, you know, it's really invaluable. And of course they have their own expertise, their own ideas and strategies that they then share, you know, over and above what I could ever put in a program so. Um, That's where it it came from, really, to want to, yes, you know, I love my one-to-one work, but doing something with a a group of parents is extra fulfilling.
0: So what were the first steps you took? Because I know that the membership that you're running now is called the Guilty Parents Club, but I know you didn't jump straight to that.
1: (laughs) Yes. So actually, the first thing I set up was, it was more of a mindful parenting group, more similar to something I'd run in the the NHS. And I actually set that up when my daughter was only about eight months old. And what it, it was in person, in fact, locally. And what it did was gave me a night off. So that was, <laughs> that was, you know, partly, partly for me, but you know, the material I loved, and I know that it's helpful for me, but it's been helpful for a lot of my clients in the past. So I set that group up, ran that locally, it went really well, it was great. But then you you had parents saying, this is all wonderful. I feel more regulated, I feel more calm, but I still don't know what to do when my child is doing X, Y, and Z. So I was like, okay, no problem. I already also have this kind of expertise in my my toolkit. So I'll set up a, a course that's more about parenting tools. So I ran that. And then, of course, parents are like, yeah, that was great, brilliant, really good tools. You know what, though? I just can't use those. I can't use those tools when, you know, everything's gone haywire and I just can't think straight. Um, It doesn't matter what I've learned. I can't put it into practice. So I was like, "Okay." so, you know, obviously parents need both. They need both of these things at the same time. So that was when I started to put together the six P key. Um, framework that that I've developed, which has um, six sort of types of strategy for parenting your child on the one hand, but that on the other side, they also apply to us as parents about our well-being, our regulation and how, yeah, we need to kind of look after ourselves to keep ourselves regulated before we can actually, you know, use the use the other ones. So yeah, it's a sort of, virtuous cycle i guess when you've got both
0: so i love that for two reasons firstly i think it's really powerful to develop a framework that people can remember and so people might remember if they listen to this um, podcast for a while when i interviewed simona stokes about her embers model Um, That's another really nice example of this. It sticks in people's minds, which means they're better able to access it when they're stressed. So I think it makes it more effective, but also gives you something to confidently talk about. You know, I I know from talking to you when we've done coaching together that the idea of doing stuff like the media rounds is quite intimidating, but you've got your framework to fall back on. So, you know, your default answer is going to be one of those P's or all six. <laughs> so it's like, I, okay, I've got this thing that is always safe to talk about, that's always going to deliver value to people and put my core message across. So it really makes your life a lot easier because it means you can hinge your content, everything you're putting out there around that framework. And so I love that, it's a really good example. But also you developed it by listening you didn't assume what people needed, you put out a test offer that wasn't massively stressful and arduous for you to create. And then you listen to the feedback, put out something else that wasn't really stressful and arduous for you to create. And then from that, you got the feedback you needed to create the thing, which probably has been a little bit more arduous to create.
1: Yeah, I think I think you're right. And I think what's I, it's useful to kind of see that process because when you start looking at the, you know, the marketing space and everyone's saying, don't create, you know, a massive course, definitely don't do that. You know, don't make, create a course that just contains everything, you know. And I was a bit like, uh oh, that's literally what the Guilty Parent Club is. <laughs> um, uh, and so I kind of had to just ignore that bit of advice really, because I felt genuinely like I was responding to what people have told me and what i i sort of know they need from a experience level but also from a theoretical level that you know that we you know it is a vicious circle we can't do one thing without the other so you know there
0: were good reasons i think why i well i think the reason that most of the advice is not to jump in and create a massive course is because most people don't do the first two rounds that you did
1: mm-hmm. so
0: most people jump straight into trying to create a big course without having listened to people first and mm-hmm. um, so yeah I don't think there's anything wrong with creating something which gives everything you think people need I think that can be a really good thing but there's kind of two things to consider firstly do you know that's what they need And you can tick that box. Um, But secondly, the format in which you deliver it, is it actually accessible to them? Because that's the other mistake I've seen. Um, Psychologists in particular tend to make this because of our love of research and theory and and all of that stuff, Um, is that sometimes we present people with what our brains can handle and we forget that we've had, you know, often 20 years to accumulate that information whereas you know we're dumping it all on people that have maybe never gone beyond a GCSE in science so might really struggle with it.
1: Yeah I think I think that's a really good point and it's definitely something that I you know constantly have to work on for myself to to, to make sure I don't kind of run away with things that are too complicated um, and what's really lovely actually about the first cohort of the, the Guilty Parent Club is that I am able to take on feedback from them. So although, you know, a lot of it was, was planned, um, and kind of written, I'm recording the podcasts for it as, as we go along and I can hear what, what the parents are saying. And there's been a few things that they've asked for, you know, additional kind of written materials to make things make a bit more sense or, um, you know, the length of the podcasts, what's best for them. So yeah, it's definitely, um, kind of a work in progress. Um, and certainly doing it as an audio podcast based, uh, course sort of club community was in response to, to feedback from parents that they just, you know, and I know this, I find it really difficult to find the time to sit down and watch a video, but can you stick on a five or 10 minute podcast while you're doing something else? Yeah, you probably, you probably can. Um, so that aspect combined with the live meetings we're having every two weeks, which is again, seems about right for parents. It's not too much, not too little. Um, seems to be working out um, at the moment.
0: Brilliant. So I, I know a lot of people will be wondering, so how did you find the parents for the first cohort? Was it, was it an easy marketing job? Can you talk us through a little bit of what you did to get the, that, those first people um
1: well i think one of the things that that helped a lot was that i ran a webinar which i know is a pretty tight tried and tested route for marketing but definitely it, it it gave i think it gave parents quite a bit of value on its own and that was kind of my intention so it was a webinar about how guilt and stress can get into a vicious cycle for us as parents and the ways in which we try to deal with those feelings of guilt, actually, often just kind of perpetuates it and, and makes us more stress which makes us kind of make more, inadvertent commas, mistakes with our parenting and then feel worse and worse. So, there were a lot of parents that came to that which I think, and they felt, you know, that was just really useful to know, in of itself um and also you know people want to get to know you they want to see you they want to see you talk and figure out whether you're the kind of person that they like um so i i can see why running a webinar like that is is useful for um bringing bringing people in um Definitely, think-
0: especially in the parenting space because the there's a lot of diversity isn't there in parenting interventions that are out there and people do tend to be you know very re- repelled but by, by the one that is not their natural camp um so you know you've got the gentle parenting side and you've got the people that want to follow a gina ford type approach and so people have really got to work out if you're the right fit for them before they're going to invest with you
1: yeah absolutely and I, you know i would feel the same and it is it is quite a crowded marketplace and i don't want to kind of add to the noise of that and i think you know, everyone that's signed up to the Guilty Parent Club are people that like a bit of science, you know, they like a structure, they like evidence-based practice. um, And that's not going to be for everybody. Um, And so, yeah, good to kind of get, get a sense of what, what someone's offering, what their vibe is before, before going for it. Um, Other than doing that, what did I do? I don't know. I did lots of things. You know, I have a, an email. An email list when I, and I tried to send valuable content out to them. There was a bit of word of mouth as well. I, I know that, um, a couple of people joined on the recommendation of either a friend or, a their psychologist, even who happened to be a colleague of mine. Um, there's some parent groups round about where I live and, and there was a bit of word of mouth, um, there somebody joined directly from instagram um you know so I, it was it was a real it was a
0: real mix it's always interesting i think to look at where people have come from so that you can look at what's your most valuable angle for next time so you can sort of double down on the stuff that was most effective for you so it'll be really interesting to see what happens when you go for cohort 2 whether you see the same pattern or whether it changes slightly but i'm just wondering That initial webinar, where did you get people for that?
1: Well, I think most of them, yes. So I, I promoted that on, on social media, on my email list and on the kind of the parent, the local parent WhatsApp, um, chats, I think it was probably relatively even split between those things. Um, and I guess, yeah, I think. I think I'm probably going to do one cohort a year um, for the club, just so that I'm not constantly on a, a marketing treadmill, because that is something that I find really takes a lot of energy for me. And if we're talking about fulfilling practices, then, you know, I think that makes sense for me to kind of do it not as frequently as maybe I could, Um So, uh, yeah, I'm interested to see what happens next time, because obviously there's always a bit of a sort of first time um, effect, isn't there, of, you know, people see something new. So we'll we'll have to see. We'll have to see what happens this year.
0: Well, next time, of course, you'll have the feedback and the testimonials from the people that have been through the first time and all the word of mouth that they will generate. So, yeah, I wouldn't be too pessimistic about that. I think the, the kind of first time effect is not that great because your reach is always really limited when it's your first time out. Whereas what you'll learn from this is, you know, how to reach the right people and perhaps, you know, put more effort into those things that did bring people to you and sort of ignore the stuff, which wasn't so effective. So don't worry, have confidence, yeah. Joe. <laughs> okay. I will. I shall. So thinking about the positives, what's the most rewarding aspect of running the Guilty Parents Club?
1: I mean, I think it's it's what we all find as psychologists, isn't it? We don't do this job to to get feedback from people that we've really helped them, but it certainly is lovely when that yeah. happens. Um, and, you know, if all the stuff that's in it, it's kind of like the distilled, the most useful distillation of all the, you know, the stuff that I know helps parents. And to see that it actually does help them <laughs> is, is just always really lovely. And to get, you know, feedback, we have a a kind of group chat. And so when you get parents saying, Oh, I tried, you know, I tried this last night, and you know, it worked like a dream, or, you know, I'm just feeling really different about myself as a parent. um, Had one of the parents left me a, a really lovely voice note the other week, just saying how even within like a month or month or so, it really feels like they've turned their family around and how she's looking at her son is completely different and how she's feeling about herself as a parent is completely different. And yeah, I, you know, that is just wonderful. It, you know, that's why I think at least one of the reasons why we're in a helping profession, because we want to help people. And so, yes, it is lovely when you, when you hear that.
0: Oh, that sounds so powerful. Um, I guess on the flip side, one thing I know from running this type of Uh, program is that there are always unexpected challenges what kind of unexpected challenges have you faced running the club
1: well we're about three months in or so so I don't know if there could be more unexpected challenges coming up Um, there's been a bit of extra work to do so there was a kind of particular type of overview document that the parents requested so that's actually taken quite a lot of extra time that I hadn't quite bargained for actually recently one something that came up was that so there's there's a fair bit of stuff in there about self-compassion um and I really try and break it down into really step by step like understanding Understanding what self-compassion is, you know why it's helpful to us. Like what the impact of self-criticism is on us, at a psychological but also a kind of neurobiological level. Um, and then thinking about how we can build up that that muscle. Not ignore what you know, perhaps the, the more critical side of ourselves might be saying. In fact, tune into it more, even rather than pushing it away. But at the same time, build up another side. And I've been really lucky that the the people that have signed up have come in couples. So um, I actually kind of have to say, I sort of expected it would be mostly mums because mums tend to be the driver of joining parenting courses, but actually out out of the 10 couples, yeah, about eight of them are coming regularly together. So yeah, it's absolutely wonderful. So we've got eight dads showing up regularly and one of the dads was just really kind of the self-compassion stuff was really like completely new to him and I think sometimes as psychologists we can forget how completely different this stuff can be for some people because usually when clients come to us either for one-to-one work or if they sign up to a course you know they've looked at the material they've looked at what we're doing they've kind of got some idea of these things but I think this dad has kind of been brought along for the ride maybe by his partner hasn't really looked at you know the basis of what we're doing and so listen to the self the, the podcast about self criticism and self compassion and was just like what <laughs> you know oh my gosh like this is Really blowing my mind to an, and so, you know, what I've done is I've offered him a, you know, I've offered him a one-to-one session for us to kind of talk, talk things through all the way through the course. I emphasize how important it is that you take what's useful to you and you leave what's not useful to you. And I always preface like all of the exercises with saying, you know, bear in mind, if you have thinking about your background, think about whether this exercise is going to be right for you. Um, and if you want to stop, then you can. But yeah, I think I hadn't quite
0: anticipated just how new it might be. So I'm really glad that you shared that because this is one of the biggest fears. When I am coaching people through setting up an online program of any kind, people often get really worried. You know, what if somebody has a really bad reaction to one of the exercises or they, you know, really struggle to? Uh, cope with something that comes up for them, and so I think this shows the value of having a live component, so that you have that contact, because this person was able to give you that feedback, and you've been able to you know, support him through what can be an uncomfortable experience. It's just the reality of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I. I... I think there was a lot of, I wouldn't say pressure, but certainly when you're setting up a group like this, um, you know, you could just have the podcast material and send people on their way. And I just felt that wasn't the right thing for this, even though, yes, it makes it a lot less, you know, profitable or, you know, uh, what's the word, scalable. But what I'm trying to do is help parents and I know that what they need is that live interaction in between listening to the material like just listening to it isn't going to help them in the way that I want to help them so certainly having that, that interaction, both on the live session, but also on our chat group. Um, it makes a huge difference and then you know I do have the flexibility to say look let's meet let's meet one to one and talk this through you know actually everything's okay it's just that I think for this 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 dad it was just kind of came he hadn't expected it and it was it was so new to him but yeah I totally agree I think that the interaction is really important
0: because the fact is if you'd offered this as just a passive product he would just have disengaged you know that that's what happens you know if we feel um not don't necessarily love this word can't think of a better one but if we feel triggered or resistance to something and it's a passive product we just avoid it so i think sometimes we get a bit too in our heads worried that people will stay listening to something which is really upsetting them but they don't of course they don't do that they they take it off and run away from it um, but what you've got here is that opportunity to develop the relationship and that's so powerful and it really reminds me of um some of the experiences i've had teaching hypnobirthing so i only teach hypnobirthing to um, people that have already been through a traumatic birth experience and so often um the partners the birth partners coming along to that they really don't want a bar of it because their experience, their life experience has taught them that birth is horrible and to be feared. And they're usually trying to talk their partner into having a a planned cesarean or, um, or just, you know, very resistant to the whole idea. Um, And so you've got a big piece of work to do in engaging them and and sort of getting that scientific side of their brain uh, to become interested in it. So I think it's a wonderful opportunity, if you can get people that maybe aren't already thinking in that way uh, to come and listen to you and to engage them.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's a dialogue, isn't it? So, you know, what I say is, you know, this is, this is a viewpoint, um, you know, take, take from it what's useful and what, what could be a tool for you. Um, and if doing something differently in your life is working well for you, then like, that's great. (laughs) That's, that's absolutely good.
0: Yeah, sometimes it's just about planting seeds for people and, you know, they'll grow that into a flourishing, compassion flower uh, when it's right for them, which might not be now. Uh, But you've, you've done something really powerful by showing it to them and giving them that opportunity, which doesn't come up in a lot of people's lives. So yeah, really, really nice example to talk about there, I think. So I'm just wondering, you know, this is a challenging process. Uh, we've already alluded to some of the difficulties that come along with this type of work. And I always think we need to remember that we can't do it on our own. I think it'd be very difficult to get a project like this off the ground in a vacuum with nobody knowing about it. And I know that because I tried <laughs> in the past. So where did you find the support for your work? Um
1: well as i said before i found support with you rosie and so you know all of the other um psychologists uh, and allied health professionals in in your membership i i really you know i do think it's incredibly valuable um to have a group of people that you feel that you can kind of trust and be vulnerable um and for us to support each other completely um, as well as having that more expert guidance from you. Um, I think you know, I I also have other friends and psychology colleagues outside of that who I've been able to bounce bounce ideas off. Um, I've spoken to yeah, various, various colleagues in different capacities for support with a bit of accountability as well kind of going through and when when is it useful to set a deadline for yourself when is it not useful to set a deadline for yourself you know you don't have too much pressure but at the same time you know it's hard to actually get anything done unless you just do it um so i i absolutely think that having a community around us is 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 crucial
0: yeah i really agree and it it's just you know if what you're saying there you talked about your ideas and you let other people know about them and give you feedback and I think that's so important because when I see people really struggle um, and some of my coaching clients have been through this it's when they really won't tell anybody about what they're doing because there's you know maybe imposter syndrome or shame which is making that really difficult for them. And I think we all feel that you know certainly I do whenever I have a new idea it feels like I'm being really arrogant or uh, it's too grand and I I, I don't feel comfortable telling people about it but I've really noticed and just like you that if I do share it with colleagues it's so much more likely to happen because I can kind of gain some confidence from them I think so and I think you also you get to
1: hear that other people feel the same as you and I think it's so easy to look out there and see what other people are doing and think oh my gosh like they've you know they've got this sorted you know they're so successful um (laughs) you know they know exactly what they're doing and yeah I'm sure some people like that do exist but I think there's also a lot of people who actually are just just like you they've had an idea they're trying to they're trying to help people they're trying to kind of get things off the ground um and it's just a work in progress
0: yes and learning that it never goes perfectly for anybody like I have never launched anything where there hasn't been one really cringeworthy mistake like really (laughs) cringe like the wrong email going to the wrong people (laughs) or um You know, I've made some kind of technical problem. So the button goes to something completely irrelevant. Like there's always something because there's so many moving parts. Mm -hmm. And it's only really talking to other people who have been through it. And you think, but you're so impressive. And you sent the wrong email to a whole group of people like, okay, that must mean that that's humans. That's what we do. And we can't be better than human (laughs) exactly
1: exactly and that's very much the kind of vibe of <laughs> all of my work of what I try and you know ha- talk to parents about so at some point you have to kind of apply it to yourself as well
0: absolutely I think that's a really good note to finish on thank you so much Joe, for giving us your time today I think there's going to be lots of people listening to this that want to go and check you out and connect with you so where's the best place for them to go and find you um, well, my website is psychologist.com.
1: I'm also on Instagram and Facebook at the Um, you can probably also track me down on LinkedIn.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us. And I'll put all those links in the show notes.
1: Thank you so much, Rosie. It was lovely to talk to you.
0: Is this the year that you take your private practice seriously? Maybe you're just starting out, or perhaps you want to grow your practice with a team or passive income. Whatever stage you're at, I would love to support you. For new practices, I have our group coaching program, Start and Grow, where you'll find all the support, resources and knowledge you need to create an impactful and rewarding practice. For more established practices, come and take a look at my coaching for growth. I have a couple of spots left for individual coaching. So let me help you get 2024 off to the best start possible. Thank you so much for listening to the Business of Psychology podcast. I'd really appreciate it if you could take the time to subscribe, rate and review the show. It helps more mental health professionals just like you to find us. And it also means a lot to me personally when I read the reviews. Thank you in advance and we'll see you next week for another episode of Practical Strategy and Inspiration to move your independent practice forwards.